This episode of the Better Two Podcast is brought to you by Kitty Mystic and DM Needham, author of My Days with the Dark Muse, as well as Love is Worth Waiting For. Hi gang, Donna here. Thanks for tuning in to the Better Two Podcast. Today's guest is blind blogger Maxwell Ivy. Max has been blind since the age of five. Um, he can see light perception, so he's legally blind, but technically he is blind and having a husband that I had, and we talk about this on the podcast, my husband was legally blind as well. So I'm not going to say I know exactly what it's like for him, but I do know some of the struggles and we don't necessarily focus on that because he has something a little bit more interesting than that. And it was the fact that his family, he grew up with a family that had a long history in the carnival industry. So we talk about that as well. So I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Max. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Donna. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I am staying warm. I did not go outside because it's cold up here where I'm at, and uh, I choose to stay inside. Even though it's sunny, it's misleading. <laughs> yes, I can only imagine. Um, I It seems like in the last week or so, I've I've been on three or four podcasts, and every single one of them has been digging out from snow. We haven't had, we got very lucky. Normally we would have snow, more snow than we did. Um, since I've lived here for 20 something years, almost 30, we've had snow usually as early as October. This year, we didn't really have our first significant snowfall until January. So we are really at a detriment. We had some snow in December, but not much. But that being said, two days ago, it was negative 16. Ah, so, so where where do you live exactly? I live outside of Chicago, and I mean we had a warm wind. We had a warm December. Normally by then we've had really cold weather, but January is usually when we get the the super negative sixteens or whatever. And this isn't the worst. I think a couple of years ago we had like negative twenty five with a wind chill of negative forty. So <laughs> yeah, I remember that year. Y'all were some great free entertainment because all the news stories that we were getting from from Chicago and Minneapolis were of people, you know, setting, uh, turning hot water into snow. And, yeah, you know, it was just some really, you know, like I say, really bad free television. But it was fun for us because we were only in the 30s or 40s, you know. Yeah. I mean, I have a friend in Michigan who I told her where we're at. And she's she lives in northern Michigan. And she's like, you were colder than we are. I'm like, okay. But so it happens. And I mean, I grew up in Louisiana, so I'm used to the warmer winters. But uh, yeah. I like it up here because during the summer, it's too damn hot down down south. So <laughs> That is so true. <laughs> and here in Houston, it's not only hot, it's very humid. Well, growing up in New Orleans, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I know yeah. all about it. You know, let me curl my hair so I walk out the door and it goes straight as soon as the, the humidity <laughs> hits it. So I am more than aware of that. And then yeah. let it rain yeah. for like five minutes and then... You know, oh, it's a nice going to be a nice cooling rain. No, it's going to rain for five minutes. You're going to drive a block away, and it's going to be dry bone because it's all gone already because it's so darn yeah. hot. Anyway, yeah. we didn't anyway. come here to talk about that. So you used to be a carny. Yeah, my my family has owned carnivals for three generations now, and actually, actually, it's five because my cousin is is still in the business. And his kids and grandkids are also in the business. However, it's it's taken a bit of a hit over the last couple of years due to COVID and uh, social distancing. 
and 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 now even uh, supply chain issues having having to get some supplies for the games and concession booths. So it's it's had a little rough. But my grandfather started uh, our family's first carnival in the fifties, and uh, at one time there were four different carnivals operating in the state of Texas that were part of the Wagner Ivy family. Wow! And yeah, and I grew up in that business and was lucky enough to get to work alongside my family, even though. Uh, from an early age, I knew I was going to lose most, if not all of my vision to retinitis pigmentosa or RP. And I started losing my vision gradually when I was four or five years old, was legally blind and had to start using a white cane and start ready to rebrail when I was in junior high school. And by the time I graduated from college, it was down to what it is now, which is light perception, which in, in my opinion is simpler for most people just to tell them that I'm totally blind because they can understand that. So, uh, Despite that, through you know encouragement from family, teachers, scoutmasters, and uh, you know just growing up around people who didn't give didn't spend a lot of time thinking about what they didn't have, uh, I graduated from traditional schools. I'm one of the few legally blind Eagle Scouts, and I worked alongside the family in the carnival business for over 15 years before my dad's death caused us to go out of business, and then. Uh, after that, I started a website to help people sell surplus rides and games. And that was just a really, you know, that was a totally new experience. And I had to learn a whole bunch of things that I had never done before, never thought I would do before and wasn't sure I could do. But the great thing is, is once I did the first couple of things I absolutely had to do, I realized, hey, there's a lot more things you you are capable of than you would have ever given yourself credit with before. So in 2007, I filed for the domain name MidwayMarketplace.com, which is still in existence, and I still sell some equipment for people, but it's just not my focus anymore. I'm more focused on the blogging, the podcasting at this point, but I had to teach myself how to hand code HTML. I had to write copy, manage, manage images, um, you know, recruit clients, set fees, I had to make a lot of decisions. And then, of course, social media came along. So people were like, you know, Max, we're really impressed with the way you take on all these difficult challenges and just seem to do whatever you have to do some way. We'd like to hear more about that. So I started my second website, theblindblogger.net, where I share my experiences as a blind entrepreneur. And thankfully, that's led to four books. It's led to me traveling the country solo. It's led to who knows how many hundred podcast interviews I've done and getting to sing and speak in public in different places around the country. Uh, I've also started my own podcast. What's your excuse. And, and just recently we, yeah, just recently we've started the what's your excuse network to help other people with disabilities launch their own podcast. So um, probably more than you wanted to hear about me, but I'm trying to keep it as short as possible. No, that's fine. That's fine. Um, I want to go back to the carny aspect for a second, because, you know, when we think of carnies, you know, you know, you know, I have to go here because everybody thinks of carnival workers as what you have seen in the images on TV and in movies, and that basically you're always moving around and it's not such a normal life. But you're telling me that you were an Eagle Scout and you're telling me that you graduated from traditional school. So that tells me that you had somewhat of a traditional life because being an Eagle Scout, you're going to have to be in a certain Boy Scout group to be able to do that. 
because my ex-husband was a right. scout. So your well, life was not, at, I mean, granted, you're, I'm, we're not even talking about the blindness. We're, we're talking about just the carnival aspect. So you still actually had somewhat of a normal life. Right. But you have to realize that the carnival business changed. We're talking about, I, I got my Eagle Scout in 84. And so we're talking, what is it, 40 years now or getting yeah. close to it. Yeah. So, so the carnival business has changed. See, when, when my family had their businesses, you worked about eight months out of the year. And in Texas, maybe nine, nine and a half, because the weather would get so bad that nobody would want to come out. This was before you could, you know, set up on shopping malls or uh, set up in, in arenas and uh, convention halls and those sorts of venues. So the business was seasonal. You, uh, me and my brothers, we would stay in school till the school year was over in April or May, usually with, a, with a, uh, one of our aunts or uncles or a grandmother who didn't travel the whole season. And then we would be with the carnival for June, July, and August. And then we'd be back in school in September. And <clears throat> again, staying with relatives who didn't go out uh, and then, of course, in the spring and the fall, a lot of times the carnival would be working an event that was close enough to the house that you could go out and work the weekends and just drive back and forth. So it was different. Nowadays, it's totally corporate. Uh, when my grandfather started in the 50s, you could buy a brand new octopus, which nobody knows what that is anymore. because do. Don't, okay. <laughs> People might know the spider, which is a which is a like let's say X Men version of the octopus. Um, he bought that ride in the fifties for seventy five hundred dollars, and that included the trailer that they hold it on. Wow! Nowadays, that ride is no longer in production. But if it were, it would be a two hundred and fifty. If it were, it would be a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar attraction. Wow! If it were still yeah. being produced and uh, you know the, the business has changed because nowadays an average adult ride is a quarter of a million dollars and up 375 to 375 is kind of like the median number on an average adult ride right now wow. and an average children's ride even if it's one that they, like they call uh inter, uh, they call them intermediate rides it can also you know the parents and grandparents can also ride with the little kids like 150,000 and up wow. the yeah and some of these rides some of these portable rides take 5 10 15 trucks or more and some of them cost literally millions of dollars so the industry has changed even the even the concessions trailers you know my grandmother bought her first cotton candy stand for $2500 and nowadays it's nothing to drop a quarter of a million on a food wagon <laughs> wow so, so you have to stay out year round you have to work big events with large crowds that are there for long periods of time. Some of these companies have to work outside the U.S. to take advantage of climates in other countries like Puerto Rico. The Dominican Republic used to be a place they would go. Of course, they don't go there now. But so the industry has changed a lot. Nowadays, kids are raised in the carnival business. Their homes, they are, you know, they go to school online over the Internet, you know, using using data cards or hotspots or smartphones. That's how they do it nowadays. And um, there's a couple of carnivals, one in our, um, there's a couple of carnivals still, one in, on the East Coast called, uh, let me think, I'm going to get the name right, uh, Straight Shows on the East Coast. They operate their own traveling school. Wow. Yeah. 
They've been doing that for years and years. They're also the last Carnival in America still operating their own train. Okay. Wow. They don't u- they don't use it as much as they used to because there was a time when the entire carnival traveled on that train from one town to the next. Now they only use it a few weeks out of the year and only to transport the the heaviest uh, attractions like say like a round a rainbow or a top spin or you know some of the new stuff that's just so heavy the only way they can really move it around is by train. So the, so the the business has changed a whole lot. I mean. There's a Ferris wheel that, that Ray Kamek shows, or RCS Incorporated, excuse me, because they're, they're no longer Ray Kamek, brings to the livestock show in Houston that cost them $20 million just a few years ago. And then you see videos posted on YouTube or TikTok of like the one ride that was going around the counterbalance kind of ride where it's skinny on top. And then it has the, I, I know, I don't know the name of it. It has the, the seated petition seated where there's like two rows of seats or four rows of seats and it swings back and r- r- back and forth until it gets enough momentum to go all the way around. And yeah. the ride was lifting off the ground. Well, that's because it wasn't properly balanced. Of and course. Well, <laughs> yeah. And, and just in case you're curious what probably happened there, a lot of those rides are being counterbalanced with water because they don't have to transport the water from one town to the next on the trailer. So what they'll do is they'll have uh, they'll have uh, bulkheads ballast in those trailers, and if they fill those up completely with water like they're supposed to, it will more than counterbalance that ride, and it saves them a lot of difficulty moving that particular ride from one town to the next. So it's just like with a uh, I don't know if you've ever seen them, but if you ever see somebody deliver a brand new bulldozer um, or steamroller, a lot of those, the weight in the part that makes the ground roll is water. Okay. Because it's heavy and you don't have to transport it to the site. You can just, you know, you move the machine there and you find the water when you get there. Yeah. Which makes sense. So, yeah, so you know things have changed a lot. In my fam- in my grandfather's day, you, uh, ten or eight or nine rides was a big carnival. Uh, in my in my family's day, 25, 30 rides was considered a big carnival. Nowadays, I know of at least ten shows that are traveling with fifty rides or more. Wow. Well, and, and here's the, the problem with this. I mean, besides now we have COVID and the food chain, the, the supply chain problem. Now we're going to have the high inflation. So, you know, people aren't going to have the extra money necessarily to go out and have these, you know, fun times like they used to. You know, I'm not exactly sure because I've got family that remember the times after World War II. Mm-hmm. And when World War II was over, because the manufacturing process hadn't caught back up yet again, there were people with lots of money to spend and nothing to spend it on. So okay. inflation was a problem. But the thing was, is the stuff that people could buy that was actually available, like if you could buy a new car, which was was rare, people were routinely overpaying for items just to get them. So I have inf- anything that takes money, you know, that makes it harder for people to, to pay their bills and stuff is it's generally hard on the entertainment industry. But the thing is, is a lot of times people will still say to themselves, you know, what do I do that I really enjoy? And if I really enjoy going to the Midway and riding the roller coaster or the or the top spin or the kamikaze, then I'll find a way to pay for it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I remember when my grandma worked on the Navy base. I mean, I used my dad used to take me to carnivals all the time because he would go to like the, the Strawberry Festival or some other festival. My grandmother had a, I was a freshman in high school and there was this guy that I was kind of seeing and they had all these snacks at the, P, at the Navy Exchange. So we had those and then we went to the carnival and they only had three rides. And one was the <laughs> one was the scrambler. Uh, yeah. The other one was the paratrooper. And then I, there was a Ferris wheel, which I don't really particularly care for Ferris wheels. Don't ask me why I'm, I, I won't ride a Ferris wheel, but I was willing to ride the, uh, the paratrooper because you're still up in the <laughs> air. But anyway, uh, so I ride the scrambler. We ride the paratrooper, ride the scrambler again. And the entrance and exit was at the same place. And I'm with this guy and I think he's cute and everything. Well, <laughs> after the third time of spinning around and having this food, I bring my hand to my mouth and I can't stop myself. And I end up taking a Technicolor yawn all over my hand myself <laughs> and, and the entrance exit of the ride. And I was never more embarrassed in my life. And it's like, I had never gotten sick on a ride before in my life. And I knew it was coming, which is kind of like, Oh, I don't feel so good. And yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 That's one thing about carnivals. I'm sure you see a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it happens, you know, and there's, Usually on the rides that you know it's going to happen on, you've got what we call used to call green help, which means you hire people from town and you give them a little bit of money so that they, you know, usually they'll work a couple of days and then maybe they'll quit before the night you take the stuff down. But their jobs are do stuff like that, you know, to, to clean up when people make a mess. And mm -hmm. and the thing, but the thing about it is, is usually the, the rides that do that, um, the operator, he has to put up with, with what you did but he also generally gets to keep anything that gets left on the ride. So like, uh, so like, you know, a ride like the scrambler would knock a lot of stuff out of people's pockets. True. You know, um, I don't know if you've ever been on a ride called the Gravitron or not, but actually but I was going to mention that, but go ahead. Yeah. But um, I have known guys who have come home with cell phones and pagers because, you know, the week, the week was over and it wasn't like they could, it wasn't like they could hang around town until they found the guy who owned that beeper or, or yeah. phone or whatever. So, I mean, they would, a lot of money would come off the trip, the Gravitron, the zipper, the scrambler. And, and yeah, the Gravitron did have some, you know, some mechanical issues and there were some injuries on the Gravitron, but they eventually found out the problem with the Gravitron was some of the, some of the bolts that were used to put it together in the manufacturing process were defective. How nice. How nice. It wasn't, it wasn't the Gravitron, but it was similar to the Gravitron because it was a ride where the floor dropped out and it, oh, yeah. it might've been the rainbow. Um, no, that would have either been the roundup or that would have been the rotor. Maybe it was the rotor. Okay. So my dad, uh, we're, this is a different fair. I'm 10 years old. He 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 basically has said, I'm going to go hang out over here. Here's the tickets. Go. Now, you would never do this with your child nowadays. This is the 70s, folks. So, kid, <laughs> you know, you would let your kid go do whatever. So here's some tickets. Go ride the rides. All right. So I kept bothering him. Like, Dad, can you come ride some rides with me? Yeah, 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 yeah. So my dad has been hitting the beer garden all day. He's been having beer and, and enjoying music and everything. And now he's acquiesced and said, okay, yeah, I'll go on a ride with you. <laughs> so we're going to go on this ride where you're sucked up against the wall and the floor drops out. And yes, there's change coming out of his pocket. 
he, he does lose change out of his pocket. And as the ride slowly slows down, and as soon as they say we can go, my dad is off that ride quicker than quick at the next tra- at the nearest trash can, puking his guts up. <laughs> and and then I, fe- I felt bad because it's like, well, I didn't want him to get sick, but it was just like, it's like, yeah, we're, I'm not riding any more rides. I'm like, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, this is stuff that happens at the fair, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, lasting memories, lasting fun childhood memories. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and we would do that 40 weeks out of the year. So uh, nowadays they do it 52 weeks out of the year. And only the only the top people, the, the, the supervisors and the owners actually get any time away from the business. Wow. Yeah, I mean, the way it's portrayed, it, it's not always put, you know, that's the one thing about TV well, movies, they don't always portray things accurately, and they don't always oh, they portray were accurate. things nicely. Nice oh, they were accurate. Oh, they were, were they? accurate. <laughs> they were accurate. Yeah, I mean, um, I've got relatives who were in Texas. There's a famous 60 Minutes uh, episode where Mike Wallace showed up in North Texas somewhere and wanted information on some of the games that were operating back in the 70s, and one of my relatives actually dropped the awnings in his face and told him to get the off their midway. So, I mean, so stuff like that happened and it still happens occasionally. One of the, one of the downsides to the cost of the equipment is somebody has to pay for that equipment. So, you know, there are some people who are just tempted by the need for the extra income. And so even on big midways, sometimes you will still see some games where you're like, man, why are they still doing that? So, uh, and the, generally, the smaller the smaller the midway, the more likely it is that the stuff you've seen on TV is either accurate or was accurate. Okay. Well, now, I wasn't meaning so much about shady games. I was just meaning they 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 paint carnival people to be not so pleasant. Maybe that's the better way to put it. <laughs> well, there used to you know for a long time there was a lot there was generally antagonism between the carnival people and the townspeople. So there's. There's probably some justification for some of those portrayals. Um, I know that I know that with my family, we always went out of our way to 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 be nice to the locals, to to deal fairly with the committee organizers, and more often than not, we would leave a, an event the year after a larger carnival had decided not to come back, and we would play it with our eight nine rides, and they would end up with more money from us than they did the year before, and. Of course, the reason for that was when my dad said, we're going to give you 25% of what we take in. That's what he actually did instead of 25% of 25%, you know, so there, but there's always been some, some animosity and in some places, even now, it's not a good idea to leave the carnival location during the week. If you don't have to understand, understand. So, but I, 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 you know, I, I've, I learned a lot of important lessons from my dad over the years. And, and the most important thing I learned from being in the carnival business is, is that, that uh, you're never going to have all the time, money, or other resources that you want to have. So you just have to find a way. You have to come up with a creative solution because in the carnival business, the only thing that matters is can you get open by Thursday or Friday night and can they ride the Ferris wheel and buy a funnel cake? Okay. And they, they, the, 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 the visiting public could care less if you had a truck break down or if your generator quit or if somebody in the family is sick. So since there's, since you grow up in that atmosphere after years and years of 
Well, there has to be a way. We just have to find that way. We just have to get through this week, and we'll worry about next week, next week. It really does, uh, you know, build up that mindset and builds up that those muscles to where, you know, one, you can, you can think about creative solutions, but the other thing is you just decide, okay, we're going to find a way. There has to be a way. We may not like the way, but we'll get there somehow, you know. Um, and, you know, when I, for me, when I combine that with the fact that for a lot of people who have experienced vision loss or some other disability also have to learn to be creative, you know, you put those together with a positive mindset and a goal of first wanting to start the website to help people sell their used rides and, and now, you know, to encourage people and, and build a business around, cre around creating content, it makes me pretty successful, you know? Mm -hmm. It does. And, you know, I was going to, I was going to pivot to talking about your, your vision condition. I mean, was it something that ran in your family or was, or were you the only one that had this condition? Well, we can find no evidence of anybody in my family ever having it, but retinitis pigmentosa or RP can skip generations and it can show itself in different degrees in different generations. So it could be that people in my family had it, but chalked it up to old age or to some other cause for their vision getting weaker. And since none of, since, you know, people weren't even tested for it until the late sixties, early seventies, there's just no way to know. Right. I mean, I, we were talking a little bit off camera and my friends know this. So, I mean, people that are not, don't, that don't know me, I mean, my husband, he was a type one diabetic, so he got diabetes and he did really well and he lost the weight. This is before I met him. And then somebody told him, Hey, I know how you can trick the system. And I'm not going to go into detail because I don't want to give anybody else advice on how to be a bad diabetic. I mean, he, he was proud to say he was bad diabetic at a certain point. He's like, I'm the poster boy for a bad diabetic. I got, I got neuropathy. I got a heart condition. He had kidney failure. And he ended up losing his vision. He ended up getting to first. It was weird because we went to a doctor and because you're not, you know, you have the eye issue. We went to the doctor and this one doctor kept saying, well, you have herpes of the eye. And yeah. so, the, but the test kept coming back negative. And so they're like, well, what we want to do is we want to go in there for lack of a better way to put it. I don't know the technical term. We want to go in and either burn the cornea off, you know, burn, burn that off, or we want to button tuft it go in there. And, and so we're like, let's go to a different doctor. So we went to a different doctor. And she first thing she says to him is, well, you have diabetic retinopathy, you, you know, you're, you're not making tears. So let's cauterize, we'll put some tear plugs in and, and we'll go there for first. Well, during this, he ends up with a stroke in his eye. So he, he loses vision in his left eye. And then his other vision, he starts getting a cataract because he had retina reattachment. He had three retina reattachments. And that's always a fun thing. By this point, I am with him. I am his wife. And the retina reattachment was a whole, whole thing. But so no one tells anybody this, that when you have a retina reattachment, you're going to get a cataract. So slowly his vision's decreasing. They've done laser, of course, because of the diabetes and the, the bleeding, the bleeding vessels. So he goes in for, we bought this house that I'm in. We bought this house. He never really even saw it. His dad and I bought it. He was there, but he didn't really see it because he couldn't. So they go in and they take the, they, they go in, this is like two, three years later after we bought the house, they go in, they, they replace, you know, they do the, they do the cataract surgery, replace the lens. And he comes home like the day after and he's like, oh my gosh, I can see the house. 
So like for <laughs> six months, he had great vision. He got to see things and, but slowly but surely the vision started decreasing. And, and I, there, this is what I'm going to say, cause I know you've been through this. I'm sure as a seeing person, we don't always, we don't think about it because we live out in the country. So there would be times when we were driving back from dialysis and when he could see it was great. When he couldn't, you know, mm-hmm. I would make the mistake and go, wow, look at that sunset. And the fact of the matter <laughs> is he couldn't see it. And it's like, you, we, we don't think about those things. And I mean, I have my own issues, health issues and, and medical issues, but we don't think about those things because if somebody looks normal, we we don't even register in our head that something's off, you know? And I mean, yeah. and, it, and it's like, we, we don't think about vision. We think everybody can see, we think everybody can hear, but really when you start losing that, and I know you understand that it, it changes your world. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about looking normal. I can't tell you how many times over the years people would come up to my booth on the midway and I would turn my head to look towards them as I was talking to them. And they would accuse me of not being blind because I was looking at them while I was talking to them. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, people would come up to (laughs) when we went, we went somewhere and somebody walked up to John on his left side and they're like trying extending their hand to him to shake it and i have to say i looked at him I'm like he can't see you i'd have to to have this conversation many a times because somebody would be like oh hi john and it's like he can't see you over there <laughs> you know you, you you forget this and and it's it's just a whole world to navigate and i think people don't realize that you may look normal but you don't you're not in that person's body or their skin Right. For, for example, I have a friend named Chelsea Nguyen. She's an uh, image consultant and now vocational instructor, and she teaches visually impaired people about their style and grooming and also interview skills. And we actually had to sit down and brainstorm, and brainstorm for interview purposes before COVID. What does a blind person do with the whole shaking hands process? And we finally realized the best thing to do was just to expect that somebody would want to shake their hand and tell them when they walked up to a desk or walked up to a person just to ask, could I shake your hand? And that seemed to solve it. But that's the kind of things that people with vision loss have to think about. They have to, Mm -hmm. you know, how am I going to do this? And of course, uh, COVID kind of made some things easier and some things harder because I was at a conference when COVID really hit and they were talking about locking down the airports. I thought I was going to get stuck in Orlando, Mm. but, and that week, they decided uh, they were going to issue, they're going to put stickers on people's lanyards. So depending on what color sticker you had would be whether you would shake hands or whether you would hug or whether you would just bump uh, elbows or whether you would just wave. So, you know, knowing that most people weren't going to come up and shake my hand actually made that week a little easier. <laughs> but, you know, not not knowing when people were waving at me, that kind of was not not fun. But Usually people come up and talk to me, so it didn't. It wasn't a big thing, but yeah. The, and I can't. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a car with somebody, or I've been at. I've been at church with somebody, and they have either asked me to look at something, or they have turned and sh- and sh- put their cell phone in front of me because they just forget. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, I, and I will say this because you know, as we've gotten the smartphone, the one thing we learned, and people were always amazed. We were looking at appliances one day, a washer and a dryer, and John wanted to see inside, and it's too dark because. Once again, we have light perception issues, as you understand. Yes. Yeah. So I grab my cell phone and I take a picture and the sales clerk's like, what are you doing? 
And I'm like, just watch. So I took a picture and then I blew it up and John could see it. And, and the guy's like, wow, that's really smart. I'm like, that's life. That's, you know, yeah. instead of having yeah. the extra equipment that you used to have to buy for seeing things, he was able to use his, his phone or my phone to be able to do this. You know, when we would get phones, there would always be the bigger size phones and same thing with a tablet. It's like, he didn't end up with a tiny tablet. We made sure we had a big tablet for him. And yeah. I, I mean, he was fortunate enough to have vision and he never completely lost it. But like my grandmother, as she got older, she, when she came up here to live after Katrina, she could barely see the E and, and her vision was so bad, but she had never said anything about it. So yeah. I, knew she, I knew she liked wrestling. I knew she loved okay. wrestling. So right. we had an Xbox and I ordered a game and it was a wrestling game. I've never played it since. But I, I played. The, I'm playing this wrestling game, and she's she's thinking she's watching a real wrestling match. John comes to the living room, and she's <laughs> like, "Oh, sit down, sit down. This is a really good match. Just it's a great match. You have to watch it." I'm like, "Okay, as long as she's enjoying it, that's all that matters." So she got you know you, you do what you got to do. Yeah, yeah, and especially when you're dealing with somebody older who's either losing vision or has never accepted their vision loss, a lot of times that's really what it comes down is finding something that makes them feel the same way they would have felt 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I think you, I think what you did was a great solution. Um, and it was cool that, you know, the video game was out and I'm glad it was whichever one it was. I'm glad it was one that was easy for you to play because a lot of those games are just my, oh, yeah. my brother has forced me to listen to a lot of video game reviews and it seems like a lot of those games are just horrible to play. So at least you, at least you had a good one, you know. It, it was Xbox, so it was a lot simpler than they are now. And I mean, I'll be honest, most of my game playing now, even though I do like some race card games, I stick to the Lego games. They're easy, simple, <laughs> and they're funny. Otherwise, I, 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 I've tried playing Tomb Raider, one of the newer Tomb Raider games, and. The, the fact that you could actually visually see all the blood and you could hear a dog ripping somebody up. I just, uh, no, that's not, I don't consider that fun. I call that for me, that's anxiety. So uh, yeah. Mm -mm. Yeah. You know, and um, there are, there is a whole generation now of visually impaired and even blind gamers. Really? And, and yeah. And I'm, I'm not one of them because I've, basically have not picked up a, a video game of any kind since since asteroids was was okay. the big seller so that's you know that's like 40 years ago yeah uh so i've i when if i have to go to an arcade i try to find the speedball machine or the mini bowling um you would you would have loved you would love my job in 1986 i i started out as a birthday hostess and moved my way up to an assistant manager at chuck e cheese back when chuck e cheese was <laughs> Back when Chuck E. Cheese was cool still because you had the video games. Besides Skeeball, you actually had all the video games. So yeah. 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 And a lot of those video games have been replaced with redemption redemption games and prize games. And there's not a whole lot of real arcade games left in the arcade anymore from what mm. I've because at one time me and my brother were, were thinking of opening an arcade. So we actually did a lot of research into it. But uh but yeah, that's 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 what you you know that's what's real you know i i um i'm working someday i'm going to write a blog post about games and toys because you know when you're when you're growing up and you're losing your visions a lot of times it's okay you got this what's supposed to be a great new game now will i be able to play it you know yeah. so 
my my favorite my two favorite games from when I was younger were Othello and and Simon because okay. I could play both of those and Othello was was better than Simon because other people like to play Othello mm-hmm. and it was one of those games you could basically put in your jeans pocket if you weren't wearing really tight jeans. Mm-hmm. So you could carry it pretty much anywhere, you know, it, it had the magnetic display and it folded out. So and the, the pieces all went inside the box. So yeah. Um, there's a guy named Tom Sullivan. He's a famous uh, entertainer, talk show host, uh, documentary filmmaker who happens to be blind. And his first auto, first autobiography wrote the lines. He said the three most beautiful languages, words in the English language are want to play. Because <laughs> when he was growing up, nobody wanted to play with him in his neighborhood. Uh-huh. Yeah, he finally had some new family move in when he was six or seven. So, you know, but like I say, one of these days I want to write about games and toys. Othello was a great game. My my uncle gave me that and I used to carry it around. And, and for me, you know, the statement about nobody wants to play. I, I grew up an only child. So, you know, I, I often joke and I talked about this on the podcast. One Christmas, my parents decided to give me one of these giant bags because I was staying at my grandparents house that night. And they give me this outside the front door of my grandparents house is this big chimney shaped bag. And in this bag is about 20 board games. And I often joke, it's like you give a, you give a, 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 a an only child board games. Yeah. Okay. And I had Gnip Gnap. I, I'm pretty, Gnip Gnap was the, th- <laughs> the, the six balls. You know, you had to get the three balls over to the other side. So I'm playing Gnip Gnap by myself. Now that's like playing Pong by yourself. Once again, very first video game system I had was a Sears Pong set where they had like six games or whatever. Yeah. Oh, so you get it. You get a, you get creative and you start trying to play Pong by yourself and then you just put it in a loop. And, you know, I mean, as an only child, games are kind of like, well, OK, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I think I think blog posts about gaming games and everything would be interesting. I do. Yeah. Like I said, I find it interesting. We're, we're having like I said, this is, there's a whole generation of uh of visually impaired and blind people now that are playing games. And some of them are even developing games, which I think is really cool. Nice. Nice. I think that's, I I think if you can embrace and grow, even though you have a disability, that's important. I mean, it is because you're still functioning and you're still enjoying your life while your life might look not look identical to what my life looks like. You're still living fully. You're not falling for the woe is me situation yeah. yeah well like i said my family has never done the woe is me thing we might allow it for five minutes but that's usually the extent of it well and it's a it's a pretty powerful place not to be i mean if you can get yourself out of that after a short amount of time and still be okay and, and carry on and which obviously you've done most of your life that's you know i give you kudos because it's not always so easy right it isn't and so that's why i like to share I have this. I have this technique that I've I've used, and over the years, it's it's I've done it so often that it's just become a natural thing. I don't think about it anymore. But I like to tell people that if they're wanting to be more positive, so to find the positive in their lives, they have to decide it's there and look for it. To, look, look for it until they find it. Just like if you lose the TV remote, you know it's in the house somewhere, and even if you have to tear the cushions off the couch to find it you know, eventually it's going to turn up and 
then you know if if you if you're sitting there with a cold drink in one hand, your favorite show on the TV, yeah, you'll worry about cleaning up the mess later. So I tell people to find the positive. It really is that simple. You decide it's there, or you decide it's going to be there. So you know, getting up in the morning and saying that at least one good thing is going to come out of my day and expecting it to show up, usually it will. Um, either it'll be something obvious or it'll be something that maybe wasn't a perfect example of, of a positive experience, but you can find some positives in it. And that's how, you know, you, you do that often enough, it becomes a habit. And that's how, you know, when you do things like selling a quarter million dollar carousel and not getting paid for it, you can find the positives of increased web traffic and new clients. Or, you know, when you, when you lose the boat, when you literally lose the boat on Lake Conroe on a scout fishing trip, you could find the positive in learning how to properly cast while you're standing on the boat, on the dock, waiting for the rest of them to come back with their fish. You know, you, 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 you build it up over time. And that's, well, I think one of the worst things that most experts do is they make things seem simple and make things seem like that if you start affirmations today, that affirmations will work for you tomorrow. Or if you start meditation today, meditation will work for you by the end of the week. And in most cases, it takes practice. It takes making something a habit to the point where it becomes part of your personality for it to really work when you need it to work. Right. And I mean, going back to the affirmations and the meditation, you also have to allot for that with everything that is positive, there is a negative. There is a shadow self to ourselves. So we have to be able to see that, navigate it and deal with it. We can't just put our finger, you know, fingers in our ears and, our, you know, <laughs> cover our eyes at the same time saying, la, la, la. It's, 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 yes, you can. It just doesn't work very well. Often. It's, it, it goes, but I've talked about this before. There's a, there was an insurance claim on my desk where I asked the lady, I said, how did you avoid the accident? Cause the car was coming at him. I, she, her answer on a recorded statement was, well, when my son gets scared, I tell him to cover his eyes. So and count to three. So I covered my <laughs> eyes and counted to three and I'm sitting they're going you did, and I can't say anything to her but I'm thinking to myself wow you could you, instead of turning the wheel you covered your eyes and counted to three but I'm just sitting there oh no okay and I'm thinking yeah. you're insane lady what the heck I mean <laughs> she could have gotten into a serious accident but nah take my hands off the wheel it doesn't yeah. matter really yeah. you, you yeah, know there, there are there are people like that. And, you know, going back to affirmations, one of the things that, uh, that, that I tell people to start with, and, and I mentioned this in my book, It's Not the Cookie, It's the Bag, about why affirmations don't work is generally people will say, say several negative things about themselves before they stop themselves. And then they feel worse because they didn't say positive things to themselves. So I like to think of affirmations like a seesaw. So in the beginning... Every time you say something negative, then you have to find something positive to say about yourself. And then as you do it, it becomes a habit. Then you can slow yourself down as saying those negative things about yourself or to yourself. And, you know, eventually you get to the point where you stop yourself. And also eventually you'll get to the point where you can find more positive things to say about yourself than negative things. It never gets to the point where you never utter, utter a bad word about yourself to yourself. But you know, the the healthier you can talk to yourself over time is, in my opinion, when affirmations work. 
Well, most definitely because you're not, you know, I, I have to, I often have one of my best friends I have a conversation with and I'll talk about wanting to do something and then I'll give this laundry list afterwards of what something that'll keep me from doing. And she goes, you've stopped yourself before you even started because you've <laughs> overanalyzed everything. And it's like, well, I mean, we had this conversation this afternoon. So it's like, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, you have to get out of your own way in your own head. And a lot of that stuff comes from the, the material that you were given when you were a kid, because, you know, you would come in and say, Hey, look, I got this great idea, ma. Uh, go away. You, you don't know what the heck you're talking about. Just go away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, you know, well, one, one thing I think that would really help would be if more of the people that are accomplishing things would, would share more about their fears and their worries and their mistakes and their setbacks than they do. I think the biggest myth going is that su successful people either hide their difficult times or they stop talking about their difficult mm -hmm. times. Agreed. You know, so, you know, maybe they aren't consciously making an effort to always share the good things, but they just, uh, you know, a really good example for me is last year I had John Lee Dumas on my podcast. I had him on my podcast by accident. I didn't try to book, um, you know, the rock star that is JLD, but I said something on Twitter about how I would love to have him on my podcast, except for the fact that it doesn't sound to me like he's ever struggled or dealt with any kind of adversity. So he responded back. He said, how about a guy who uh, was forced to go into combat and lost four of his brothers in arms in one day? And does that sound like somebody you'd like to have on your podcast? So I had to apologize very quickly and say, yes, you are. You know, you have struggled. And then we then I found out about how nervous he used to get when he started doing his podcast. But those are things that you would have to dig deep into his website to find out. So that's what I mean. They stop talking about these difficult times they've had. And, I don't, you know, for, and for most of them, it's not something to do on purpose. It's just, you know, they get they get they maybe get tired of talking about it or. They, you know, are focused on saying other things because it's more beneficial to their business and their brand. So I, I think we really need to share the difficult times that we that we all have, and uh, hopefully, you know, we can we can encourage more people. I just finished writing an article for the American Printing House for the Blinds website on starting a podcast, and I purposely took the point of view and I used my own experiences because this is how I've done it that there are a lot of things people think they have to do in order to start a successful podcast that just aren't true for most people. You know, they think they have to have thousands of dollars worth of equipment or they have to edit their audio to within an inch of its life or, you know, they have to uh, have so many episodes recorded or they have to have fancy artwork. You know, just so many things they think they have to have when really all you have to have is a, a topic that you're passionate about and the willingness to just press record and put your stuff out into the world. So I, I feel really proud about that. That article hasn't come out yet, but I feel like I, I'm going to do a lot of good eliminating some of these things that overwhelm people because they've got it in their heads. They should do them. The, the only thing I would add is, okay, well, I had my own bad experience. The day I recorded my hundredth episode, I had, unfortunately, because of internet issues, I was off for two weeks. And so I set up all my stuff. I forget to set up my other camera. And I'm sitting there looking at myself going, man, I look really bad because it was going through the laptop. The camera was still going, but I didn't realize, well, 
you know, put your, you didn't have the separate camera on. But the one thing I will say about podcasting that nobody ever talks about is they're like, oh, I'm going to start a podcast. Awesome. I'm happy for you. This is awesome. And then after they get to six, seven episodes, and this is journal, this is statistical. Yes, it is. They, they, just, they just go, oh, it's too much work. I'm done. <laughs> you, you know, I, I've, I'm, I think, I think you're 104, I'm not positive, but it's like, you just keep going. You have to keep going. Cause otherwise, if you don't, then it's not a passion project. And if it's not a passion project, then yes, please, you shouldn't be doing this. But if you're passionate about the topic, if you're passionate about talking to people, which I mean, that's the gift in itself about podcasting is I've talked to people all over the world about things yeah. I would have never thought of talking to somebody about. Yeah. And that is a gift in itself. And most people don't see it that way. They they look at it as like, okay, well, I'm going to go into podcasting. It's an easy way to make money. It's an easy way to get my name out there. And, and that's not the case. It's work. Right. But it is work. But I do, I will, I will, I will um, stick to my opinion that a lot of people are quitting because they're doing work that they don't necessarily have to do. Possibly. I mean, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, they have hangups about their editing or about their website, or they don't like the sound of their voice on the audio when they listen to it, which I would just tell them to stop listening to their own audio, but that's just me. Uh, but I mean, like, for example, I, for a while, I was trying to do my podcast with a free hosting platform, which I will never advise anybody to do. And it was so frustrating that I thought about quitting. But then I thought to myself, okay, who says that I have to submit my audio to have a podcast? So for about a year and a half, I just posted the video to Facebook and YouTube, which some people will tell me was not a podcast because people couldn't listen to it on Apple. But I was still enjoying the process of having doing the interviews and recording the content and sharing it with people where, where I could share it without driving myself crazy. And then after a year and a half, I was uh, encouraged to uh, by somebody who introduced me to the Blueberry platform, that it would be much easier to upload uh, the content and create the posts. And I've got my podcast going again. Uh, it's been off and on due to some minor health issues that I think are solved and some computer issues that I hope are solved. But, you know, before then I was like, oh, you know, they say if I'm going to do a podcast, I have to post the audio and I have to post the audio every week. Well, I decided for Max for a while I was just going to post the video, and if I felt like posting the audio, I would, and that was okay. Um, another thing, you mentioned your video. Mm -hmm. One of my best watched videos that I ever recorded is a was the first video I recorded as the blind blogger, and if you watch the video, it looks like I'm sitting in a cave because I have retinitis pigmentosa, which means I have I only have only a light perception, and I have very little peripheral vision. So if I don't look at where the light is supposed to be, I can't tell you for sure if it's on or off. So I recorded the episode without any light on, thought I'd done a great job, and posted it, and then I started reading the comments. And about a third of the comments were, Max, this is horrible. You look like you're, you look like you're a troll sitting in a cave somewhere in The Hobbit. You need to re-record it. But the other two thirds of the people were like, you know, Max, this is really a brilliant metaphor, you know, that the blind guy is going to lead us out of the dark places by sharing his content with us. And so I, I left it up. It's still up. Um, 
I recorded video for several months with the camera from my laptop, which for anybody that does video, you know that that's a horrible angle. It's very distracting. But people were still watching those videos. I'm very happy, or at least my sighted friends now are happy that I have an external camera and I have an external light source. They're still after me to buy a professional microphone headset, but I keep telling them as long as this one's working, I'm not going to invest hundreds of dollars in a new microphone headset. Uh, if somebody wants to donate one, but I mean, I, I just think, you know, the social media, the email list, the lead magnets, the creating courses, um, you know, affiliate sales, all the things that people want to do around a podcast to make money from it. I think a lot of that just, just does just get overwhelming at some point. And I think that if, if a lot of people would just think, okay, I started this podcast because I enjoy crochet or because I wanted to share my experience fighting cancer or, because I want to tell people how to be safe around the home. Just focus on that and continue to do that without worrying about all these other things. They'll keep going. Uh, that's, right. you know, that's where I come in. And uh, the stat you were referring to is if, if somebody records nine episodes, that puts them in the top 10 percent percentile of podcasters around the world. Mm -hmm. They said that there's roughly, I think it was 2 million podcasts that are out there. However, there's only like, I think between... 250 to 500,000 that are actually active because people just give up. Yeah. And I happen to be lucky enough. I, even through the broken laptop and doing things from a tablet, I have the, what's your excuse show. I'm, I'm helping the, uh, my friend, Emily Trepanier with shredding for gold, which is, you know, she's a blind snowboarder. That's, um, chasing gold medal in the Paralympics and downhill snowboarding, which I think is one of the few activities I know of that makes Max sound sane. You know, mm -hmm. when people worry about Max traveling all over by himself and is he going to get back home or not? I'm like, you know, I have friends that are crazier than I am. <laughs> you do know this, you know? Um, so, you know, helping her with her podcast and looking forward to at least one new show before the end of this month, I've got three or four in, in uh, pre-production, I guess, is the big kid's phrase. So we're, we're working at this network, the What's Your Excuse Network, to help other people. And one of the things that we're hoping will come out of it is we will build a community of podcasters and that we will be able to support and encourage each other and, and, keep, and keep each other going past, you know, 10 or 20 or mm -hmm. 100 episodes. And uh, if this... You know, we've, we've started getting people who want to have their shows syndicated on the platform. We're starting to get people creating new shows. So hopefully this time next year, we'll be at the point where our traffic numbers will be good enough that we can start reaching out to sponsors with real money or investors or even just making better affiliate sales deals for the host by, you know, Hey, if they're on the network, they're getting better, better viewership in this particular niche. So you, you should give us a higher percentage of the sales when we sell stuff for it. So that's, you know, those are the, some of the things I'm hoping to do with the network. At this point, it seems like whenever we bring somebody in new, they bring some, they bring some skills with them. Like we found out during Emily's launch that Max is horrible at virtual podcast launches. So Emily is now our chief online party planner for podcast launches going forward. And, you know, I have a few friends who will do editing on a, you know, on a small basis if we need it done. 
you know, starting to build more of a social media community. So it's, it's, it's a work in progress. And I, I really think that there's a lot of positive things that can come from it. And I still think it's crazy that a friend of mine had to cha- challenge me to do it. And I told him no the first time or we would have started this a year sooner. No, I, I get that because uh, when my husband was still alive, I wanted to do a podcast with him called Counting Down the Days because I knew he was going to be leaving me. Wow. But he did not want to. He, he kept, yeah, we'll do it. And we never did. And so after he passed, I have a friend who is a, a sound engineer and he knew I had a radio background and he just kind of kept pushing me and a couple other friends kept pushing me. And it was kind of like, all right, folks, I'll do it. And then so last year I did. And I, I do three episodes a week as far as airing. And then I'm, I have a, an intuition podcast that I do reading on each weekend. And I'm about to, I'm thinking about doing another, another podcast separate from all these so yeah plus i I write books and yeah so pretty much uh i got a lot going on so what kind of of books have you written um Um, i write one is a romantic uh suspense and the other one is a rock star a bass player's journal he's a kind of a cokehead so it's (laughs) it's it's kind of a wild ride of a book and it's a kind of a dark book and a couple of guys who have read it so they couldn't believe a girl wrote it so yeah. Well, you know, um, that's what you know, that's what you need to do. You need to re-release it under a guy's name. Oh, actually, I released it under DM Needham specifically so nobody would know. And I get emails sometimes saying, sir, would you like your book reviewed? <laughs> like, go to my website and you'll see I'm not a sir. And then, yes, I, I, I thought about it after I went out there and released it. I'm like, great. So my initials are DM. So I'm a direct message. Lovely. Lovely. I didn't even think about that when I released it. But yeah. So I'm direct message Needham. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Well, you know, you, the thing is, is that could be a negative or it could be something you work into a future book. You know, it could be, mm-hmm. you know, you could, that could become part of who, who you're, who you are as the voice in a future work. But the one thing about it is you don't have to encourage people to DM you. They will always DM you even for stuff that you like. I mean, my favorite direct messages and emails have to do with women sending me pictures of themselves that I can't see. That's that's oh. like my that's like my that's like my delete test. If if you haven't figured out from my email address, which is just ask at the blindblogger.net, if you can't figure out from my email address that I do not want to see naked pictures of you, then you do not want to be my friend, you know? I, I see I have to say, okay. I, I didn't know guys got naked pictures. I know girls do. I have not gotten any. Not that I want any. I don't. I get these guys going, hi, beautiful. My favorite. And I've talked about this a couple of times because it's the most recent one. Hi, beautiful. I would like you to be my sugar baby. I'll pay you weekly. <laughs> and all I wrote back was, does this actually work? And I, 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 I decided to delete them. I'm like, don't even bother Come responding. On. Come Just on. delete them. So I you know, you know, there are a lot of women who still haven't got over being cared for by their daddy who would be happy to be taken care of that way. I know that. And I mean, my mom used to joke that she was looking for a sugar daddy as a joke. I get that. That was the thing of the 70s. But it's just like, come on. I mean, that, that's like somebody just the first thing out of the gate. Hi, beautiful. Really? Really? I'm well, not 20. I'm does not work. for that. It probably does work for him occasionally. I would think so. But, you know, it's the same thing. Depends on, it depends on what his budget is. 
But it's the same thing with, you know, you you getting unsolicited pics of nudies and, and, and women getting unsolicited dick pics. Excuse me for saying it that way. But either way, nobody wants to see this. If you really are trying, I mean, am I supposed to look at this? I remember I remember I had a friend. He, he's gone now. He's passed. Um, and he was dating a stripper. And okay. So, okay. There's a reason why I'm saying this. So he comes over to, I, I had come back to town. I was, I came back to Texas to visit and he came over to my, my mother-in-law's house to visit. And he brings this photo album, this little hand sized photo album. He's like, well, I, I want to show you my girlfriend. I'm like, okay. His girlfriend's nude in all these pictures, by the way. <laughs> so I'm looking through this and I stop and I look at him. I said, he's like, and I, I finished and I handed it to him. He goes, so what do you think? Um, she's not a natural blonde. What do you want me to say? <laughs> what do you want? Me? I don't want to see her naked. What do you want me to say? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, it is. It is interesting what people will, will, will get into their heads that way. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so I guess on that note that we've digressed this far, I guess it's time to wrap up the podcast. So is there anything that we haven't discussed that you would like to add? Um, uh, the only thing that I think that I, that we haven't really covered is that, you know, I've, uh, I've done a lot of podcasts as a guest. I've been a host for six years. And so besides helping people launch podcasts, one of the things I love doing is helping people come to, come to understand their story so they can tell their story more effectively, because that's how you get invited on a lot of podcasts, or that's how you get a lot of hosts to say yes, when you reach out to them. So I I've, I love help. I was, besides the podcasting stuff, I love helping people figure out their story and tell it, so that you know they can get on podcasts. And you know that's generally that's what I've done most of the last few years to pay the bills is uh, teaching people how to be guests or booking them on podcasts. And the one thing I would tell people is is, is whether you're pitching a, an agent or a publisher for a book or you're pitching a podcast host or a journalist, the most important thing is. That most people, there are very few people that, that will be exceptions to this. Most people do not buy you, your product, your service, your book, or your album. They buy your story. So, you know, when you're when you're inter- you know that elevator pitch that scares the heck out of you. If you think about think about it as you're telling somebody your backstory, or your origin story, you'll get better at it. But that's that's the only other thing. You know, when it comes to when it comes to being out here online, being a creative business owner all comes down to being willing to tell your story openly and honestly. And, and if they don't like it, well, then the heck with it. That's why I mean, I, I've said this to a couple of guests. When I started this podcast, the very first episode is me. It's all me. I'm talking about my mother's suicide. And the fact of the matter is the reason I chose that topic. And the reason I did it was because if I'm going to reach out to you guys and ask you to tell me your personal story, then I have to put myself in the hot seat. And that's the way I'm very proud of you. That is, that is a great example to set. Uh, but I, I still run into people who are, who don't have, don't have even, don't have that level of, of history to share, who are concerned that if they share it, they will potentially lose business or lose employment or possibly not be invited to somebody's birthday party. Oh. I get it. I get it. I, 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 I <laughs> at the end of December, I recorded an episode with a sex therapist and you know what? That is my most popular episode. And I was a little candid about that episode. So yeah, I may have been a little too. <laughs> too I, I open. can't, 
I can't top that. The closest, I, the closest I can go to that on my podcast is a a former dominatrix who now helps uh, who now helps stay at home moms run their businesses more efficiently. Okay. Well, I am going to have a dominatrix on on an upcoming episode. So she doesn't help. She doesn't, she doesn't help stay at home moms now. But uh, yeah, I, I have a dominatrix <laughs> coming on as well. I'm sure yeah. that'll be a lovely episode, and I'm looking forward to it because she's been on my show once, not as a dominatrix though. But yeah, uh, don't even yeah. talk about that. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it, it's one of those things. It's like you, you, for me as a host, I have to, I have to be able to be honest with my guest, and if if it means opening up to something I want to share, then I will. There have been a couple of topics that I'm like, I won't answer, and the same goes for my guest. If a guest doesn't want to answer, that's fine too. So that's yeah. the give and take of being. You know, you wouldn't talk about it if you were at a coffee shop. So why talk about it on camera? Well, me and you. Me and you might. I mean, it would depend on how on how busy the coffee house was. You know, what I mean, true, and how good the coffee was. We might. I mean, true. We're both relatively open people, so who knows? But uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, but it is interesting that even now, after you know years of more and more people being really out there with their personal stories, that we still have uh, the vast majority of people are still scared to be authentic and let people see who they really are because they're afraid. Yeah. Well, there are, there's always the ramifications about saying something that, you know, might be misconstrued or you're going to get, you know, cancel culture is rampant. So I, I get that part. I do. I do. And, yeah. you know, there, there's a lot of times when I've talked about something and I'm like, I know if you want to come at me, go ahead. There's my email address, but understand everybody's entitled to their own opinion. So that's, that's the way I look at it. But I thank you, Max, for coming well, on the show. You. It's been an interesting. Well, thank you, Don. I've enjoyed I've enjoyed our time together, and I hope that your that your audience enjoyed it too, and that um, that this is this is what you were hoping for when we agreed to do this. And I just want to make sure I remember to tell you that I started doing podcast interviews nine years ago because I didn't have any other way to reach out and meet people and start start telling them who I was or what I was up to. So. Without people like you, there really wouldn't be of the blind blogger or the what's your excuse. So I want to thank you for being part of my journey and part of my story. Thank you for coming on. So Maxwell, or Max, it's very interesting that, uh, you know, he has a blind blog, blind blogger blog, blind blogger blog, and say that three times real fast, folks. Um, and he's, he's being an advocate. And I think that's very important to have advocates people that are willing to help other people learn their craft. I think it's smart. I think it's an imperative that we do this. And, you know, the thing about the carnival, you know, there's a lot of things that we, like I was saying online or on the, on the podcast, there's so many times that we actually look at carnival workers and we see the, the way they're painted and, and being shady, but apparently some of that is true. You know, sometimes fact is stranger than fiction you just don't realize it. So Max, I think, you know, he has, a, he has a very kind heart. And I think that, you know, I, did you ever realize how much a carnival ride actually costs? I certainly didn't, but I think that 
you know, what he has done as far as growing his, his podcast, his, his business, his, you know, he's transitioned from somewhat of the carnival thing. He still does it, but he's transitioned into being a more support system and building a network. I think it's empowering and important that he's giving a voice for the people that are disabled because not every time does a person that is disabled have a voice and you can be judged. Um, you know, I've talked about the the placard that I have and how people sometimes give me dirty looks because I look perfectly healthy, but that doesn't mean that I am. And I'm not sitting here saying that I'm, you know, I'm in ill, ill health, but I have my own disabilities. And I think that just because you can't see somebody has a disability doesn't mean they don't. So, you know, that's, that's my little spiel about that. I think that, you know, we, when we have vision and I talked about this a little bit on the podcast, you know, there was many a times where I would see something and did you see that? Well, no, my husband didn't because he couldn't. And we take vision for granted sometimes. And as we get older, yes, our vision fades and it changes. And then we're like, we, we start missing it. And I think that we need to consider everything that we have, whether it's the sense of smell, taste, you know, sense of smell, sense of taste, our hearing, our vision, whichever. It's important. I mean, my dad now can't hear because of tinnitus. And imagine losing something that that is part of you. And I know people with COVID, they've lost their sense of taste. Imagine that, though. I mean, imagine the struggle and how different your life would be if you lost one of your senses. So, Appreciate what you have, appreciate the life you have, and be thankful for it because not everybody is as fortunate as you are. And on that note, well, if you have a comment, question, or concern, please do not hesitate to reach out to me at Donna, D A U N A, at better2podcast.com. That's Donna at D A U N A at better2podcast.com. If you want to catch up on an episode that you've missed, you can find them at better2podcast.com. And all our social links are there as well as our Patreon. So if you follow us, great. We also have another podcast called the Weekly Intuitive Podcast for people that are into tarot and the woo. And that you can find on Anchor as well as, or not Anchor, well, yes, Anchor, but Spotify and Apple. It's not necessarily as wide as the big podcast, but it's out there. So if you're into the weekly stuff, check it out. And also on TikTok and Facebook, we do have a daily card pull. So yes, there's been a lot going on and there's still more going on and more guests to tape and more shows to do. And I hope you're liking it and I hope you're enjoying it. And I thank you for tuning in as always and enjoy your day, weekend, night, whatever, and whenever you're listening. So I'll catch you next time, guys. Bye. Better Two Podcast is mixed, edited, and produced by Rich Zai of Third Ear Audio Productions.